This is episode 26 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hey there, guys. I'm Scott Beebe. I'm an entrepreneur, a business coach, a dad, a husband, and a podcaster. And if you're a heroic small business owner or you work in a business and want to take your life back from the chaos and the demands of work, you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my buddy Tom Hefner. So go listen right now. Stop waiting around. I don't think pursuing your own happiness is the right independent variable or the right outcome if you're really trying to lead a better life. I would argue the pursuit of contributing something to the world to improving others' lives is a much better idea than orienting your efforts towards the pursuit of your own happiness. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business, and entrepreneurship. With apologies to my previous guests, today's episode might be the most influential interview we've done to date. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with Tom Rath the prolific New York Times bestselling author, and without a doubt, one of the best scientists I know, researching strengths in individuals, communities, and organizations across the U.S. and the world. In our conversation, Tom and I will be discussing the three most impactful habits you can adopt to lead a healthier and longer life today. The biggest mistake we make when pursuing happiness strategies we can practice to cultivate a more meaningful life now, book recommendations to help us cultivate a healthier and more meaningful life, both at work and at home, and so much more. Tom Rath is one of the few people who can take your breath away with the achievements in his life. He's the author of six New York Times bestselling books. That's right, six. His last book, Are You Fully Charged?, spawned a feature-length documentary, a children's book, and an accompanying app. In addition to his prolific writing, Tom also serves as a senior scientist at the Gallup organization, where he previously spent 13 years leading the organization's work on employee engagement, strengths, leadership, and well-being. Most importantly, Tom is a devoted father to his children and husband to his wife, Ashley. Tom, thanks for being here today, and welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. It's great to have a chance to talk with you today. You know, one of the most fascinating things to know about Tom is that for a long while, writing... And by extension, writing books was not even on his radar at all. Tom, talk if you would about how writing became such an important part of your life. You know, it's a great it's a great question that I probably haven't given enough thought to retrospectively, but you know, I the last place I ever thought I'd end up in this lifetime was writing books is a big part of my living. And when I when I was growing up, I was always real inquisitive, numbers, math, technology oriented kid. Uh, and even when I did attempt to take an AP English class, I had the snotty instructor say to me, <laughs> no, your writing doesn't even reach par where you should stick with math and not take any more classes in writing and literature and so <laughs> forth. So I, so I, that was kind of it. I went off to college, didn't take any classes in writing literature, didn't think I'd ever share any words publicly with another audience. 
but then I, as I was doing some research early on in my career, I was working with my grandfather on a project on some assessments we were putting together. And partway through that, I found out that he'd been diagnosed with a gastroesophageal cancer. And uh, so as we were traveling all around to these medical centers, uh, my grandfather, Don Clifton, said to me, you know, I've had this idea about how, you know, people have these emotional buckets that they walk around with and every little interaction either fills them or takes from them. And he said, I've been thinking about writing a book on that. Do you think we can do that in the next two months? And so it was, it was kind of the ultimate challenge to me because I wasn't very comfortable sharing my writing, but we were moving around and he had a specific thing he wanted to work on uh, and a lot of urgency. And so uh, long story short is I worked with him kind of night and day as we traveled around and we were able to keep Don alive another 10, 12 months, I think. And over that span, we finished the first draft of the book that became uh, How Full Is Your Bucket? And so that immersed me in writing when I never expected to be doing that. And over the course of that year, it was an intensive learning for me about how, you know, stories and narratives and words are critically important if you want to bring important research and ideas to life. And so even the kind of quantitative researcher in me said, you know, this is something I've just got to learn to do if I want any of these data that we're looking at to have a real influence on people. Because I mean, all the old adages about the way people listen to stories and remember stories more than data are absolutely true in my experience. Yeah, I would yes and that and say, in my experience, one of the things that took me a few years to learn, I do a lot of work in design thinking. Uh, some people know that as human-centered design. And uh, for the first few years, we really struggled to kind of uh, get buy-in and uh, from the people that we work with at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, in large part because we totally forgot the storytelling element. And once we we came across and started working with uh, the folks at Pixar, um, we started to learn kind of their methodology or their approach for storytelling and started to uh, integrate those kind of story elements, if you will. And, and when you can move somebody with stories and you can you know, move them emotionally, then all of a sudden it opens up something, you know, huge in terms of people that buy into what you're doing. So I'll definitely yes and that. I'll also say that your the, the book, uh, that that concept of bucket dippers and bucket fillers, it's it's made its way all the way down to my son's, uh, my youngest son's preschool. And so that's a big thing that they talk about uh, and he'll come home and we'll ask him, were you a bucket filler today or were you a bucket dipper? So thank you for, uh, for, for writing that. That's fun to hear. You know, it's interesting how some of those just very simple concepts and metaphors can have such a strong effect with kids that age and to see the way that also played out when people started to think about the importance of those quick interactions with employees and customers in the workplace was pretty remarkable. No, it really is. Uh, it's really fun to see my my son will in the heat of the moment if he's angry, he'll he'll look at you and say very angrily and say, "You are dipping from my bucket, papa." <laughs> <laughs> So it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, you're well known for your research and your work on strengths. What strengths did you lean on to develop and sharpen, uh, sharpen your, your writing skills kind of in that crucible moment, you know, of taking, you know, of helping uh, take care of your grandfather, Don Clifton? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting that you'd mentioned Pixar because one of the most, one of the highlights of my career in the last five years uh, was getting that I had an opportunity with a colleague of mine to go out to Pixar and have Ed Catmull himself give us a tour of the campus and all the behind the scenes places where they do their stories. And uh, one of the most important learnings 
from that experience uh, was just how rigorously they test their narratives mm-hmm. and ask what will resonate with both adults and children, and that they continue to be open to new twists and storylines and plots. And, you know, that's, I think, looking back on it now, as you asked, I, I had a huge benefit of, I didn't think, I, I thought I was a horrible writer, not even like <laughs> a semi-competent one. And so as a product of that, I shared my very earliest raw drafts with anyone who would read or listen or pay attention. And I continue to do that to this day. So it's I, I, I throw the roughest stuff out there and say, does this resonate with you? Do you like these stories? Does this make any sense at all? And the books I work on can go in entirely different directions based on what stories resonate with people, what numbers and what research people like. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't have, I still don't have imagination that anyone really would care about the quality of my writing, those early drafts. <laughs> I just share that raw material and the feedback I get as a product of it is what shapes these books into what they become over a year or two. That's really fantastic. And I, you know, I can, I can definitely resonate with that. I think you were, you were a human centered designer before you even knew it. I mean, a big part of what mm-hmm. we talk about in human centered design is, you know, prototype early and often. So sharing out those stories early and getting that feedback is, uh, it was, is what we do in, in human centered design. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to be said, right? The more I've learned about technologies that allow you to do rapid prototyping and kind of, I mean, I've, even early on in our, with How Full Is Your Bucket, we were doing A-B testing with all kinds of titles and covers. And I mean, I, at first I, I wanted to title that book, How Negativity Kills. <laughs> and we put that out in a quick A-B test and it got crushed by everybody's idea. And then <laughs> some random person threw into the pot, why don't you call it How Full Is Your Bucket? Somebody that worked at Gallup, and that was one of 15 titles that none of us liked, but it won all the levels of testing, and we framed the book around that. So, it's, I mean, you got to kind of follow the data sometimes and see what resonates most. Your grandfather, Donald Clifton, he's been called the, the father of strengths-based psychology and the grandfather of positive psychology. For a good chunk of your career, you devoted much of your research and work to furthering that science. And just a fun fact for all of us, is his book, StrengthsFinder 2.0, was listed by Amazon.com as the top-selling nonfiction book of all time back in 2016. So, with all that work and focus on strengths, why did you pivot and write Eat, Move, Sleep, which focuses on the small habits that every one of us can adopt to live a long and healthy life? I kind of got to a point in my career where I'd written a lot on business and strengths and positive psychology, and that was a big part of my life. But the other kind of underwriting track of learning that may have been even deeper was a result of a personal experience I've had where I've been I was diagnosed with a very rare uh, genetic disorder when I was 16 years old that essentially shuts off one of the body's most powerful tumor-suppressing genes. And so as a result of that, I I lost an eye, all vision in an eye when I was 16. And doctors said, you'll likely also have cancer in your kidneys, you'll have pancreatic cancer, you'll have cancer in your spine. And they were right about, they were right about all of that. So I'm, I'm currently battling cancer in all those areas and have been to some degree or another, it's been at least 25 years now, just since the di- original diagnosis. And so as a product of that, I spend hours every day, and that's not a stretch at all, reading medical journals and the latest articles about all the things that I can do to uh, stay ahead of my condition, both from, mm-hmm. I mean, things like different types of radiotherapy to diet to activity and movement. So I've just been building a massive catalog of 
all the things that I can do to at least slow the growth of existing cancers, maybe stop new ones if I'm doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. And at some point in my career, about five years ago, I stepped back and said, you know, I've been compiling all this knowledge and at any time one of my friends or relatives or friend of a friend diagnosed with cancer, they come to me and say, what do I do? And so I said, I got to step back and assemble all of this information in case it's helpful to just people I care about, even if I don't publish it in the form of a book. And Mm -hmm. so as I took a sabbatical, decided to try and pull all this information together. And as I started to do that, that eventually turned into the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, which is essentially the basics in each of those big three areas that are so important that I've learned from my own personal research about health and well-being. So let's let's pull the thread on that a little bit further, and, and I'll give you a little backstory here in that or back context. You know, this show exists because we want to know, you know, we want to understand, and we want to apply habits that will help us thrive in our life. So you know, for sure, the 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 physical and mental health side of that is really important. If we could choose only three habits to 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 lead a healthier life, and maybe that's too constrained, but what would be the three most effective or impactful habits to practice right now? You know, I think the three most impactful things that people can kind of keep top of mind throughout the day, the one would be to put sleep ahead of almost all else in terms of priorities. So when you think about your next day, work back from the time you know you need to wake up. Make sure you have the opportunity to get a full seven or eight hours of sleep. And so for me, when I'm at home and in my normal environment, I know that if I'm in bed for eight and a half hours, I'll probably get seven and a half or eight hours of good sleep. When I'm traveling, I actually have to work back nine or 10 hours in budget because I know the sleep won't be the same. Mm-hmm. So I have to go to bed extra early when I'm on the road, especially if I have an event or I'm speaking or meet, have meetings early the next day, just so I know I can be my best. So, so I would start with sleep and work back from that because if you get one good night of sleep, it's like the reset button on a video game. It fixes all the stressors from the day before, fixes all the lack of energy that you had the day before. It's a great reset on a new day. The second thing I keep in mind throughout that day is what are all the small things you can do just to build a little bit of activity in throughout the day? I personally, after all the research I've read, I think that continuous sitting is a much bigger public health challenge than lack of exercise. Mm. And so even if you get up early in the morning and go work out for 30 minutes and get your cardio in, I think that can quickly be canceled out if you just sit in an office chair for six, seven, eight hours a day, and then you have the time you spend sitting in a car, your dinner table on your sofa. How do you minimize the total number of continuous seated hours? And it can be as simple as just getting up every 20 or 30 minutes and stretching to take a break, setting a timer so you get up more. I've worked on a treadmill desk for five years continuously now. And boy, when I'm on the road and I don't have access to a treadmill desk, it feels like I'm hungover from college days. (laughs) So moving around more. And then the third thing I would say is watch what you eat in a, in a, I'd say in a more nuanced way where one big goal we've all gotten, I think most people agree on is we've got to minimize total amount of sugar we intake in a day. And sometimes people forget to count total carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates in particular, which just quickly convert to glucose when they hit the bloodstream. And so what I do is a little shortcut. Instead of looking at the giant calorie number on boxes nowadays is to look at the ratio of proteins to carbs and say, how can I keep that as close to an even balance as possible? Because 
most of the junk you see in the middle aisles of a grocery store, you'll see a ratio where it has 20 refined carbohydrates for every one gram of protein. And I, I found that to be a good little nuanced trick to keep your diet on a better track yeah. than looking at calories, which calories is really just a measure of consumption, not quality, in my opinion. No, that's a really good point. I I didn't realize that, uh, that like, that's a really good rule of thumb because we, we're definitely trying to, you know, eat healthier and uh, and we definitely look at the sugar content and things like that. But I like the corresponding looking at the protein to uh, sugar ratio. That's really good. Yeah, if you do that, it keeps the carbohydrates masking as sugar from tricking you. Mm. You see what I mean? That's yeah. The little, that's the important part of it. It's so hard. Uh, I mean, in, 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 anymore, it seems like it, everything you buy, anything packaged seems like it's a good bet that it's going to have, you know, some sugar right. added to it. Or you can just avoid the packages. That's the other idea that I like. Yeah, no, we, we, we try to uh, go as uh, kind of whole food as we can in terms of, you know, eating our, our fruits and vegetables and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, is one of the things that we, we, we struggle with a little bit right now, especially as we were talking before with having a newborn, uh, not only asleep, so we, we definitely got to work on the, the continue, you know, the seven, and eight, uh, seven to eight hours of sleep, but just with kind of life and the chaos of life is trying to make sure that we're, we're uh, at least mitigating or minimizing the amount of packaged foods that we buy and making the time and making it a priority in our life to, to make sure that we're, we're cooking whole foods for our, our, our meals and things like that. Um, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, happiness has become a hot topic in popular culture. There are books, there are magazines, there are blogs, basically any type of medium you can think of has been devoted to the pursuit of happiness. And I think so many of us are searching for that happiness. If that sounds familiar or you find yourself nodding in agreement about chasing happiness, then I want you to stop what you're doing right now and pay close attention to my next question for Tom, because it might be the most important thing we discussed today. Tom, is happiness even something that must be pursued or do we have this kind of endless pursuit all wrong? Most of the pursuit is well-intentioned but misguided. I'll, and I'll talk about this for a minute like a researcher. I don't think pursuing your own happiness is the right dependent variable or the right outcome if you're really trying to lead a better life. I would argue that the pursuit of contributing something to the world to improving others' lives is a much better idea than orienting your efforts towards the pursuit of your own happiness. And suggest that because almost all of the research I've read suggests that if you pursue meaningful activities that make a difference in other people's lives, give back to society, improve your relationships, instead of saying, how can I make myself happy? You will actually end up being happier as a product of pursuing things that have a deeper purpose. And that's why, a lot, you know, a lot of the research I've been uh, doing in my spare time over the last couple of years is focused on that thought of how can we help people to make an even greater contribution to their family, to their organization, to society, instead of just focusing on your own well-being as if that's an end in itself. I mean, I wrote a whole book called Well-Being. It's all about, you know, what are the basic elements of well-being. But I don't, I still, even then, wouldn't have argued that people should pursue self-well-being as much as the creation of well-being for others. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. No, no, definitely. Are there, uh, I don't know, a few like ideas or strategies that we can operationalize to help us kind of cultivate that more meaningful life? Um, you know, for, for other people's and then by, you know, product ourselves? Yeah, you know, it's I think it's probably the greatest day-to-day -day, essentially pragmatic challenge that a lot of us face in the modern world today is how can I 
take a dedicated amount of time today and focus, and even an hour, gosh, an hour is a lot of sacred time, (laughs) on something that will continue to grow and have a positive influence for another person after I've spent that time on that task. And that can be as simple as asking a great question of someone you love, a family member, and just genuinely listening and hearing their response. Boy, does that have more and more value nowadays than it ever has. Or it can be dedicating time toward project, whether that's research or writing or art, or it can be putting a process in place in your workplace that ensures people have more safety or security in something they're doing there. But some focused effort that I think we we need to orient our goals a little bit more towards what are the things that we can put time into that continue to grow when we're gone. And I don't mean when we're gone from the earth. I mean, just if you don't, if you're not able to be at work tomorrow, did you do something today that still matters for other people? And I love the orientation of some of Adam Grant's work around give and take and a lot of that body of work, which shows how when we can see that we're doing things that have meaning for other people, we do more of it and we feel better about it. So I think we've got to be a bit more pragmatic about how do we script our days so that we have an opportunity to do that. Because the challenge coming at us in the other direction right now is that there's so much information flying at us when a text message dings and we get another email and something's flashing across the screen that it is insanely easy to just (laughs) spend a whole day responding, get home and realize you didn't really do a damn thing that made a difference for somebody else. Yeah. I mean, there's oftentimes I, I find myself, you know, two, three hours go by and I'm like, all I've done is just, I've been in my work, not thinking, you know, I've been working in my work, but not thinking on my work or thinking about my work. And, and, and you kind of get lost in the mechanics or the, just the kind of the day-to-day operations and you miss out on those opportunities, like you said, uh, uh, to, to really connect with and, uh, and do something good for somebody else. And that's, I think you hit on it right there. It's, If I were to give people one question, it would be set aside the responding for a moment. What's something, what's one thing you will initiate today that you expect to continue to have a positive long-term influence for other people? If you can just do that once today and answer that question, it should lead to a good cycle. Tom, before we move on, is there anything else from your book, Are You Fully Charged, or even some of your other books uh, that you'd like us to know? I mean, I realize that's kind of a big question because uh, you have six uh, books, but uh, but anything I might have missed that you say, hey, you know, Tom, you didn't ask me about this, but this is something important to know. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I have, I think, come to appreciate the value of more and more uh, as I age and watch my young kids playing around is... We need, I think we've got to find a little break in a day to ideally get outdoors, be active, and just focus on kind of play and free thought quite a bit more. That's, I think that's another challenge that I see coming at us that is kind of increasing in value and magnitude in what we do today. And instead of just focusing on that task orientation, there's something about being out in nature, having some moments of fun and laughter and play. When I, you know, I've one of the best books I've read, it's coming out next week. It's from uh, Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford, who's a friend of mine, but it's titled Dying for a Paycheck. And that book is probably the best summary of a lot of workplace research I've been a part of and seen on this topic, where the default right now, most people's relationship with an organization or employer is honest to God, just killing them. And it's that simple. The reason why is because 
most people experience sustained and chronic stress throughout the day that's far higher than it is when they're at home in the evening or when they're having fun with their families on a weekend. And we, we've got to find a way to turn the table on that so that chronic stress doesn't crush our physical and psychological well-being over time. Oh, yes, and that as well. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, I love love my job, but uh, I never had acid reflux. I never had orthopedic injuries until I started working at my organization. And, you know, people love their jobs uh, or some people love their jobs. And at the very least, people are invested for better or worse. And we're not made to sit at a desk for eight hours a day, you know, laboring over a computer. It, it's just not good for you. And that's I tell people all the time, you know, when I finally kind of made that connection and and, been, and was more intentional about taking walks outside, even if it was the winter time or just, you know, getting out. Uh, we have a, a little trail where I work and just getting outside and having that, that nature uh, and that little bit of sunlight that made the world of difference for my health. I think a lot of us get so busy, we underestimate the cognitive and creative benefits where the, my favorite quote from that Steve Jobs book that nobody seemed to notice, the Walter Isaacson bio, he asked, Isaacson asked Steve Jobs in an interview, he said, why do you always make Larry Ellison and all these guys show up at your house and go for walks in your neighborhood for meetings? And Jobs looked back at him and said, I just think better when I walk. I think we all do. So we've got to find ways to kind of build that into the structure of what we're doing. I've, I've actually got a, a little pet project I've been working on that's almost, we're about to share it with some people here in the next month is uh, just kind of a big lab building out in uh, a little ways west of D.C. here in Virginia, where we're trying to put together a classroom of the future where people can walk while they're learning in a classroom or pedal on a bike or move around. And we're kind of exper we're experimenting with new active classrooms yeah. so that people don't have to be. I mean, same thing as you with kids. Kids, last thing you ever want is my uh, seven-year-old son to be stuck in a chair for 50 continuous minutes if you want him to learn something. But yeah, that's how we've... <laughs> So we've built crummy classrooms for kids and we've built crummy classrooms for leaders and adults as well. So we're trying to figure out how do you fix that at a functional level. But it's that's been a side project where we're learning quite a bit. That is a great project. And I mean, one of the great injustices for, for kids, uh, you know, of our generation, but certainly now, especially with it being more regimented, is just having, you know, my 10-year-old my having to sit in class who he's a very energetic boy. Uh, and learns through experiential, learns through movement. To, to have him sit throughout the entire day is a, is a real travesty because he does not like it. Well, look, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Tom, you've written six books, so I think you'll appreciate this discussion. And this is where we talk about one of the very best habits we can adopt today, and that is the habit of reading. I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years or books that have impacted you deeply. You know, what are the two or three books that stand out for you? It's a great question. Um... I think just one of the the classics, as I I think I first read it when I was in high school or college, but have reread a few times since then, is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, that kind of gets to the heart of a lot of the things we're talking about, many of the undercurrents. So, in the in the space of classics, I'd probably put that up there. I joke with my wife often that maybe the only benefit of all the books that I've worked on lately is that now. People send me free books every day in the mail. <laughs> I get about three of them, so I've got a stack here. That I've, I, I do more reading than I can keep up with. I think, I, I mentioned to you before, and I've, I'm also the publisher on this book, but have spent a lot of time on it, uh, a book called Powerful by Patty McCord, who was one of the first people with Reed Hastings at Netflix. And she's, it's interesting because I'll say, I'll be really candid, even as someone who edited and worked on and was a co-founder of the publishing company on the book, 
I disagree with half of what she says in there. Um, <laughs> but it's provocative. It's a whole new way to run a company where you treat people like adults, give them insane amounts of freedom and independence, and act like this is a very open relationship where both parties need to have some give and take. And so she challenged me to rethink a lot of my conventional wisdom about what the relationship should be between people and organizations at a fundamental level. And so uh, I've got a really deep appreciation for that. And then the, I guess the final one, which I hinted at, is the book I've been looking forward to for two or three years now, since he told me what he was working on, is Dying for a Paycheck by Jeff Pfeffer from Stanford. And I think that I'm worried it won't get as much attention as it deserves because the topic doesn't. Mm. And I mean, we did a study some time ago where we wired workers, a bunch of healthcare workers, about 300. We had them wear little handheld devices. We had them wear heart rate monitors. They spit in tubes. So we monitored their salivary cortisol levels throughout Mm -hmm. the day continuously. And we pinged them and sampled them throughout the day. And I can't go into too much detail about all the data about right now, but the big summary was that the experience of work on average is doing great physical harm to the average person. And I think, and so after, after we did that, I spent a huge chunk of my career, let's call it five years, trying to figure out how do you get organizations to understand that they're affecting people's health and well-being and they need to be a part of fixing it. I basically just ran into a wall for five years <laughs> and realized at some point organizations aren't going to do it. It's not going to happen. So I've thrown in the towel on that. What I'm learning is that each of us as individuals has to stand up and say, is my physical objective health and well-being better off because I'm a part of this organization? Is my psychological health and well-being better off because I'm a part of this organization? And if not, what's my plan to fix that in the context of this organization or to start to fix it while I find an organization that will be better for my well-being? And I think if you read the Pfeffer book, it makes it crystal clear that just for the sake of your own health and your family's health over time and the people you care about, you've got to take some ownership for that. Tom, I couldn't have put a a bow on this any better than that. That's a a wonderful way for us to close. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, This has been such a a fantastic conversation. Um, Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been an honor and fun talking with you. You can connect with Tom online through his website, tomrath.org. That's T-O-M-R-A-T-H dot O-R-G. And his Twitter account at Tom C. Rath. All the links and resources Tom and I discuss can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 26. And finally, just a reminder, if you love the show and enjoy learning from our guest each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today, and I'll see you next time.